Welcome to episode number one of the Signal Integrity Journal Fundamentals Podcast. I'm Eric Bogatin. I'm the uh, technical editor of the Signal Integrity Journal. And today I'm speaking with my old buddy, Bert Simonovich. And um, I wanted to do just a real brief intro to Bert, but I wanted to let Bert uh, spend a lot of time talking about uh, what he's up to. I've known Bert for a dozen years or more now, worked on a number of projects together, um, and he is one of the uh, industry experts, uh, one of my go-to experts on uh, a lot of aspects of signal integrity and how to translate the design information into uh, actual performance uh, uh, of interconnects in the high-speed regime. Um, and so, Bert, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Great. Thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, I want nice to give to you, you again. <laughs> yeah, even if it's virtually, and I hope one of these days soon we'll actually have a in per, uh, opportunity for in-person uh, conversation again. I've That's certainly right. enjoyed our visits uh, when I've seen you in Canada or, or you've come to the States here. Um, so, 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 Bert, you are the president of Lamson Enterprises. Uh, right. Can you give us a, a quick rundown on what exactly do you do in your company? Yes, uh, I do consulting for clients, uh, mainly with signal integrity, also backplane consulting, but not so much lately. It's mainly signal integrity. Um, in the past, probably almost four years now, been kind of consulting for a, a, a good client started off as a four month thing and I'm still <laughs> kind of helping them out uh, for things. Um, and there's just various clients and then that's for revenue. And when I'm not earning revenue, I do my own <laughs> research. Okay. And uh, let's talk about your, your revenue business for a second. So the kind of projects that you generally take, are they you know, short term and you spend an afternoon on the phone helping some client with uh, fixing a problem, or do you generally take on longer term uh, design projects? Anything that comes across. Uh, this other one is kind of long term, but it's not sort of full time. So, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, a few, it's like a few days a week. And in, wow. in, okay. in term is uh, um, other clients may call. And traditionally, what has been mainly my business was um, clients wanting to review their board for high speed, mainly serial link. That's what I focus on. I don't deal with DDR. Okay. Uh, things like that. Because I find that's a specialty in its own right. I focus yeah. mainly on high speed signal integrity for serial links. What sort and, of you know, like PCI Express Gen 3, yeah, 4? Yeah, that. Uh, IEEE 802.3, all that stuff. 56 gig PAM4 is where the space I'm working in kind of now. Okay. So so that's a good, uh, a good point. Then right now you're finding that there are a lot of designs that are being implemented in the 56 gigabit uh, PAM4 kind of technology. That's where my client, I'm helping them out. Their product is sort of you know, in that space with the interconnect now. Uh, other clients is uh, PCIe Express and mainly plug-in cards, <laughs> reviewing those. And, you know, but they're not necessarily at that speed. They'd be 10 gig up or whatever. Okay. Um, but I'm finding that the most challenge with the plug-in cards is the actual stack up. The way this technology is moving, you know, you have all these serial links or interconnect and you're running out of layers for the thickness mm. and uh, people are going to 
extremes to try and get everything in. And often I find power integrity kind of suffers. Uh-huh. So for looking at PCI Swiss Gen 4, for example, what is that, 32 or 16 gigabit? Gen, Gen 4 is 30, 30 uh, Gen 4 is 16. 16. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's NRZ. I have to NRZ. keep adding them up <laughs> in my head because they're changing it, so fast. It, so I know 3 is so fast. Yeah. 16 is 4. Yeah. So not too much on that end. Okay. Most of the stuff has been Gen 3. Gen 4 is fairly recent. But, wow. uh, you know, so, if you're... I treat the serial link interconnect as the highest speed. I don't distinguish between Gen 4 or whatever when I'm reviewing the layout. I treat it as if it's got to work at, at uh, the highest industry standard it's working at. I don't the, like to cut corners and say, oh, uh-huh. you can get away with this because it's, it's right. you know, 8 gig or 5 gig or 3 and an eighth or 2 and a half, or things like that. Is there a cost penalty then when you want to design it with headroom and say, I want to design it for 32 gigabit, even though it's only going to work at 16? Oh, or no, no, I'm, think I'm not the... saying designing. Ah. Designing is different. Okay. You have trade-offs there, of course. When clients are, they bring their own design to me to review. So when I review it, I treat it as if it's 32 gig, for instance. Or I see. Six. Yep. When I, you know, I, I visually review their, their layouts and uh, that's mainly what it is. Try and catch things. I always catch something visually. Okay. Uh, so, so you play that role of that critical design review, uh, another pair of expert eyes to uh, check out someone's design. And so is that something that you do just, um, hey, I'll do it for, uh, you know, take an afternoon and review your no, design no, no. and give you feedback? Or? Generally, those things take, a, you know, a few days because it's not just reviewing the artwork. Often I also review their stack up, ensure that the impedances are right. All of that stuff. Okay. Know. So that sounds like a really valuable service that there are a lot of companies out there without the, the technical yeah. expertise on staff to, to take the responsibility for the performance. And uh, you, you provide that extra outsourcing capability of an expert pair of eyes. Or some client might come in and say, we've uh, recycled this board a few times and it doesn't pass because PCIe has a compliance test, right? Yeah. Well, it works fine, but it has to pass compliance. Okay. And, you know, in fact, one, they came that way. And <clears throat> I just reviewed the layout and the visual in reviewing it. I found uh, the issue. Wow. Right? It was like a, yeah. a, a diff pair crossing a split, but one was on one plane and one is on the other. Wow. You wouldn't, you wouldn't see it normally in a, you could oversee it uh-huh. just exactly right on the line. Uh-huh. So, but anyway, uh, you know, they fixed that and it's fine. So Wow. Okay. So very valuable service. And your website, we'll put it in the show notes for here, but sure. it's uh, lamsim.com? Lamsimenterprises.com. Enterprises.com. Okay, yeah. very good. We'll have the link in the, in the show notes. Now, you say yeah. that's what you do for revenue. And okay, so it's, I guess, other things you do for kind of fun and hobby. <laughs> what, what, yeah. are the, what are some of the activities that you're involved in in the industry? Oh, well, I'm uh, involved with uh, SI Journal. Um, and we're going to talk about the, that a little bit for sure. Yeah, we're on the on the editorial advisory board, um, EAB. It's always got the short things. I got to look at the thing what because uh, you don't talk about it every day. But it's EAB um, on DesignCon Technical Program Committee, and uh, those two activities is reviewing the. Uh, 
the articles that get submitted or the papers. Um, review it, provide feedback uh, to the authors so that, uh, as you know, our goal in Signal Integrity Journal is to uh, <clears throat> make sure the information is, uh, is, is pretty much correct. On the internet, there's a lot of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, uh, things that are just totally wrong. Uh, you go looking for things. Part of my research, I have to go search for things, and I come across things that are they're just not right. Uh, but it's there. And, uh, you know, that's my pet peeve in a way. So when I review things, I, to my ability, I try to make sure things are right to my knowledge. And let me emphasize that because um, that's a really important point. That's one of the principles that we've tried to stick to in the Signal Integrity Journal that there's a, you're, you're exactly right. There's a lot of stuff out on the Internet. Um, it's not generally it's not curated. And that's what we try to do differently with the Signal Integrity Journal content. And you are one of our prime curators um, to go help us go through that process of reviewing the, the technical quality of the, of the papers that we do. And I know you've provided a lot of valuable feedback to our authors to uh, maintain the high standards of the technical quality of the journal. So first of all, thank you so much for participating and all, all of your efforts there. And, um, and, and that's what um, I think really helps to distinguish uh, the content we have on the SI Journal. So thank you for that. And in addition, I want to plug, um, you're also one of our, our prime authors. You've, uh, I just did a quick search on the Signal Integrity Journal, and I think I came with, you have 65 different articles uh, that you've uh, written on the SI Journal over the years or contributed to, or maybe we've quoted you uh, probably and, and reviewed some of the work that, you, that you've done. I think, I think the actual articles may be around 16 or 17, something like that. Okay. No, actual the, the direct articles. Yeah, but yeah. You, you've got a lot of other contributions to the journal that, that has been uh, been mentioned there. And a number of your um, articles have uh, come up as, uh, you know, the one of the, the top uh, 10 articles that have been uh, 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 read and uh, commented on over the uh, in a, in a month period. Can, can you think back about the pieces that you've written for the SI journal, any stand out as, wow, this is the one that you've gotten the most feedback on or comments on, or think is uh, the oh, most useful. What, the, what comes to mind? The, the latest one on, uh, the different roughness of the reference plane. Uh, that one has garnished, like, you know, I, you push it on social media, for instance, like LinkedIn to kind of, you know, you have the thing and it draws people to SI Journal. The, you know, normally you get it and you get a lot of likes and different things, but yeah. that last one just took off like a, a shot. Plus, I got a lot of feedback uh, back from, you know, other people I haven't heard of for a long time. Send me emails saying, you know, they didn't realize that and uh, <clears throat> things were... <clears throat> was kind of surprising to them some of that, but they thought it was really well. And uh, quite frankly, that came about, like when I do stack ups, I normally don't, don't do the roughness. I make sure they're the same for all, everywhere. For a strip line, I make sure the reference planes are the same roughness as the traces. <clears throat> so to do the stack up, I ensure for that. Uh, and I uh, was working with or talking with Al Neves last spring, our friend, and uh, he works in, uh, he does a lot of uh, segmentary platforms. So, you know, he was working on a later one. I said, well, I'd like to, you know, kind of look at that and see how my modeling works against it. 
So once he did, he shared his things with me. And I said, oh, no, oh, my gosh, you got a rougher reference plane there. And I hadn't modeled that before myself. I wanted to see, well, it's, it was a perfect platform to kind of test it out. And, uh, you know, the modeling worked out great. But more importantly, it showed uh, if you don't have, you know, if one is rougher than the other, it could affect your loss. And if loss is important on your channel, you got to pay attention. So, uh, so when you, because I know you've done a lot of work on the um, impact of, of the surface roughness of the copper on the losses and also on the phase velocity or effective dielectric enzyme of it. So um, what you're saying is that, and in this article, you say that the reference plane is as important to worry about as the signal traces. Exactly. Exactly. Uh -huh. And you, the measurements yeah. show that. Do you, do you have a, a particular preferred uh, simulation tool that you use to include the impact of the surface roughness of the copper? Yes, I, I use different tools depending on what needs to be done. I have a modeling flow, my own structure. I use Polar uh, to do the stack up modeling, SI9000. Uh, Polar's excellent tool, SI9000, also allows you to do... Um, like loss, not loss modeling, but generate S parameters. So what I do is I do the stack up going, you know, and I put in all the parameters for it, I pull out an S parameter, and then I use ADS and concatenate all the things together for like channel modeling. And, uh, and then I just work it that way. <clears throat> the nice thing about Polar, it also has, uh, includes my cannonball hooray model, which I, uh, developed over the last few years and polar was the first to kind of pull it into their tool uh, which makes things a lot easier now if you want to model roughness of a transmission line and polar is uh, excellent for that uh, over the last three or so years other companies have now adopted uh, cannonball hooray directly in it like mentor has it um, other uh uh, um, so go back to, to uh, polar Different. for a second. So, yes. so you know, your your point earlier is that you got to worry about the roughness on each of the layers separately, yes. especially yes. if they're different. So, yes. polar tool right now includes the opportunity to do different layers, or it's all no, the same? no. So, my modeling method I like to refer to as it's heuristic. Okay, it uh, works from data sheets, right? And you take the data from the data sheets and you put it all together and you'll get an answer. Um, and heuristic, a heuristic uh, approach means it's not guaranteed to be perfect, but it's kind of good enough. Kind of uh -huh. like what you like to say, an answer now is better than a good, an a good answer later, right? Yeah. But in a way, that's like heuristic. You know, you know that roughness is going to affect things in both the loss plus, uh, you know, phase delay as well. You know, that worked into it. Roughness affects a lot more than, than just loss. Uh, you know, it also affects the properties that you're going to use to model. So the heuristic method kind of is a structured approach. You, you work from data sheets and you kind of get something. And that's your starting point, because if you're doing architectural design, which I kind of working on as well with my client, new products, and you have to kind of do different scenarios ahead of time. So you can't build little test structures, measure them and do all that stuff. And then they're only as good as the structure that you've got and the, you know, the equipment that you measure. 
doesn't guarantee that those values you can use uh, for other kind of parts in the stack up. So that's why I like to use this heuristic approach. It's structured, it gets you there. And the modeling I've shown over the last few years uh, on different products, it's not just one or two, it's consistent. So I'm very confident with it. Okay. And then after we build the, the boards, we build the first, first prototypes. I also get extra data from the board shop. Uh, <clears throat> they send me the pucks. I analyze the cross sections um, for roughness and the thickness and everything. And I validate my model to see how well it turned out. And uh, usually really well, you know. Of course, you're not going to always get your, your heuristic model come exactly with everything. And it's mainly with the phase and stuff. But the loss comes out pretty good, right? And when I do the actual cross-section and then account for it, then it comes out very well. You know, let's go back to what you just said that, um, so in this heuristic approach, you take information from the data sheet yes. and fold that into your, your design and simulation and compare to those. Right. So, you know, I've seen a lot of your presentations where you've shown that yeah. not all data sheets are created equally. Right. And you make a distinction between a marketing and an engineering data sheet. What's yeah, the I, difference between those? I call it a tale of two data sheets. Okay. And uh, if you go searching for a laminate, let's just call, let's, let's just use Isola for, because they're everybody, they're well known. Uh, at FR408 HR, you type in that in your website, you go to Isola, you got the thing right there. You can get the first data sheet you pick up has all the properties of, of that material, has the, you know, the uh, mainly thermal mechanical issues. And then you got two lines. One line is for DK at whatever, 10 gig, 3.8. And DF is 0 0.00 or 0 0.01 or something like that. And that's all you got. And if you're trying to do your stack up from that, you're going to get a wrong answer. What you need to use is um, DKDF tables. That's what your board shop uses when they build the stack up. And those are, on, those are available from laminate suppliers. You probably have to do a couple of clicks to get to it, but you have to look for the DKDF tables. Or, and they're a table. It's like, you know, when you get it, it looks like a spreadsheet. It's got all the different thicknesses, the different glass styles for the, for the laminate. And what the DKDF is over frequency. And, you know, for every thickness in different frequencies, the different uh, glass styles, you'll get a different DKDF. So when you build your stack up, you use those glass styles and the thicknesses. Then you have to use those DKDFs in your stack up. But it doesn't end there because those numbers are derived from uh, a manufacturing or test method to kind of statistically show that their material is okay. Doesn't guarantee that, that that value is usable for your design. And the reason is it's often most companies like I solely use a, a clamp strip line kind of test method. And when they do that, they just clamp the material in a structure and make like a strip line. And they clamp it together and they measure it and they get the you know, DKDF out of it. It's a quick test for the factory. Perfect. Uh, shows consistency of product. And that's what you want. And that's what TM650 was designed to do. But the trouble is now, when you use that in your real product, the roughness of the foil is attached to it. 
and everything is bonded together. See, before when they clamp these other materials in, they peel the copper away from the laminate, but the imprint of that copper roughness is still there. Plus this, they have an element pattern card that's just etched away the copper and the rest is, you know, open. So when you clamp it together, there's air entrapment. Now, when you take the measurement, your DK will be, you know, effective of that uh, structure. But when you bond everything together, now the roughness is in place. So I've developed a, a correction factor and that's heuristic as well, knowing the roughness of, of the foil and the thickness of, of the dielectric from the DKDF tables, I kind of adjust the, <coughs> the DK accordingly. And uh, then I use that number in the actual model. So when you start with the engineering data sheet from the laminate vendor, you have to know the glass style and the thickness of the glass yarn style and the thickness of that layer for mm -hmm. each of the layers in the stack up where there's core or prepreg exactly so what you're saying when you work with i also work with the uh actual board shops with the clients and we we derive the stack up together right they they give us you know i i, I sort of do a preliminary stack up myself send it over to them they sanitize it come back and say this is what it is then i'll go through it and kind of make sure and eventually we we come to an agreement and uh it works out because the laminate suppliers, they know what the press thickness is going to be, uh -huh. right? Of the preprint, you know, they can calculate that based on, you know, the copper weights that things are going on, and you know, you need to, you need those numbers, the thickness, to do actual modeling as well. And I take all of that and put it into Polar. You see, that's what's nice. The nice thing with Polar is a lot of board shops use Polar as well. So now you're sharing the same data. So when you take the engineering data sheet and then you add your correction factor for the roughness and then you put it back into polar, doesn't mm -hmm. polar also include the impact of the roughness on either the, right. the thicknesses of the DK? So right. are you double counting or? No, no, no. They don't adjust anything. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Right? You, you know, you just put in a number. If you put in DK as 3.8, they'll use that. But you have to know that ahead of time, you see. And, and that's as, as it should be. I, I don't like, I wouldn't want a tool to, to do this for you because it's, it's variable. You have to understand it. And it's not that critical. Really, it mainly affects the phase a bit. So phase is important to you. Okay. You know, if you want that exactly, then you kind of do it. it. It affects the loss a tiny bit, but not significantly. So where would you say the you know, what you're describing is a much more detailed process mm -hmm. of designing a stack up than what most engineers are used to doing of looking mm -hmm. through the data sheet saying, okay, it's going to be this material. Uh, here's the thickness. You know, you do a, like in some of the, the EDA tools and mm -hmm. establishing the stack up, they're built in field solvers that let you calculate. Here's the impedance given the, the, the bulk material properties. So what you're saying is that really when you care about the high frequency behavior and the losses, yeah, got to go the next step to yes. do a more detailed analysis. Yeah, Where, where's, where's that threshold? Is that at five gigabits and above? Is that at 50 gigabits and above? I, I think it's more critical at, uh, you know, the 28 gig. Okay. Right. Very critical because a lot of, certainly a lot of equipment that's sort of top of rack, 
you know, pizza boxes and yeah. servers and things, if they have to meet a certain standard. They have like 10 and a half dB from a big chip to, to optical modules or whatever, you know, and, and it's, and that's like 17 inches wide and you have one big chip sort of in the center. It's not uncommon to be 10 inches away, you know, and you have 10 and a half dB, but that's from ball to ball from the chip to the actual module. So you got to go through the connector. So you really only have about seven and a half dB on a motherboard to deal with. So loss could be important for that application. So if if that's important or or the specs have a loss spec, then that's sort of what you have to look at. So that's an important kind of uh, distinguishing range, 28 gigabit and above. So that includes 56 gigabit PAM4. Well, it's got the same uh, Nyquist. Exactly. Same Uh, Nyquist is 56 gig. So that, yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I, I, I quote uh, Dave Dunham all the time. He, he, yeah. he gave a talk uh, some time ago talking about connectors for 20 gigabit. And he said, at 28 gigabits, everything matters. And that's kind of what you're saying is you can't get away with the simple back of the envelope estimates anymore for yeah. stock up. You got to yeah. go into a lot more detail to get it working at 20 gigabit. 10 years ago, it was 10 gig and up because that was the state of the art. So, uh-huh. right. Um, but nowadays, 10 gig is all over. And I, but 10 years ago, people were, it was sort of state of the art and people were really critical. Um, Certus technology has kind of improved as well with it. So yes, you have to worry about things, certainly stubs and all of that stuff, you know, yeah. losses and modeling things now. When you're in, when your Nyquist is like uh, 14, sorry, we said 26 was Nyquist. Oh, 20, 14, 14, yeah. It was 425 and 56. It's still yeah. 14. There's a, got to make it, yeah. Yeah. 14, so 14 gigahertz. Like 14 gig and above. Yeah. Uh, that's what I would consider having to worry about things critically. Yeah. And you're finding that most of the designs you're seeing today, the leading edge designs are all in that 14 gigahertz Nyquist, yes. whether it's NRZ or, or PAM4. Yeah. And it's only going to go up from there. Right. And so these issues are only going to get more and more important. Right. Right. Then, then of course, uh, lately I've been working on the skew aspects. That's so, the glass weave skew. Yeah. So there'll be another article coming in on that or it has been in. So I think that's going to be published next spring in the print magazine. Yeah. I think that's going to be coming out in the early uh, part of the spring. It'll be an eye opener, so to speak. <laughs> like you only like you only have seven picoseconds of, of skew if you use point uh-huh. two UI as uh, as your budget. Uh-huh. For the total and skew budget. You can't use point yeah. two UI all for fiber weave effect because you have other aspects uh-huh. for skew in your you know your channel. Yeah. So so let's think about it for a second. So it 28 gigabit, so it's like 30 picos or 34 picosecond is the, the UI. Then seven you're saying seven picoseconds is the total, Skew. huh? Right. Yeah. At point two UI, it's about seven, seven, seven and a half picoseconds. Seven picoseconds is the total skew right. budget. Right. And and you're saying that's not just fiber weave, that's going to be you know the length differences in the packages, yeah. uh, this this right. timing skew in the IOs and all that. Seven picoseconds yeah. is it. So, you know, this paper or the article that I have, I did some analysis, you know, 
with things. Plus, I've got some data from other people's work. Um, Samtech did a lot of nice work on uh, on this stuff. So I kind of use their uh, skew per inch, like six picoseconds per inch, whatever. Uh huh. So that doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't take very much of uh, traces parallel routing, like lengths. That's yeah. like an inch, right? You could end up with yeah. a worse case. Yeah. But fiber weave, of course, is statistical. Doesn't mean every board, if you have it, it's going to fail, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly over the last 10 years, every year at DesignCon, there's always things that people are, are presenting on fiber weave effect. And certainly uh, a lot of stuff from Cisco and uh, Intel, a lot of good work on there and actual measurements and things and uh you know it's it's real and, and the uh, statistical nature of it makes it so hard to debug exactly how do you know if that's the problem for that particular right. system right uh, when it doesn't when it doesn't work yeah. you know skew has the same effect uh, as stub effect it's a resonance effect and 0.2 ui represents five times nyquist you'll get a notch and if you want to keep that rise time at you know five times, you really have to go to seven times night, which is what I put in the paper. So now your budget really is like 0.14. And it's more important for PAM4 because now you've got a third of the eye heights, a 90 dB oh. hit. So the skew has more of an effect on a PAM4 than an NRZ, for instance. Wow. I don't think 0.2 is a good budget number anymore. Right. If we're budgeting for things uh-huh. for PAM four. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, so there's mitigation techniques, of course, you know, rotating panels and things, but a lot of people argue, Oh, cost so much and so much. And I say, well, technology, you're pushing it. Things yeah. do cost. And, it's, you're, uh, you're buying insurance. Exactly. It, it's yeah. what it is. And, uh, and that's partly why I did sort of this study is to sort of, you know, to show, to put some numbers behind things, really. Very good. So yeah. it sounds like you, you spent a lot of your time then worrying about, I mean, there's the low-hanging fruit and when you have high-speed serial links of, like you said, your stubs, impedance control, terminations, routing topology. That's the easy part to deal with. You're saying, hey, at the 20 gig and above kind of data rates, you got to worry about the losses, the effective phase velocity. you got to worry about the, the glass weave skew. Right. Um, so you've been paying a lot of attention to these kind of second order factors that have been in the past, but now raise their ugly head as first order factors when you've gotten rid of all of those other easy to fix kind of problems. Right. So now you can actually, now you can model that You're doing your channel modeling. You can say, I have a budget of this. What happens if I just add that much skew? Do I still meet the spec, at least yep. in simulation, right? Uh, in the modeling. So, so, so here's the problem. Uh, you know, I find this all the time when I talk to you know, experts like you or Al Neves or McMorrow or some of those out there, we can go on for hours and hours, but mm. unfortunately, Janine is pulling the hook out here. Uh, yeah. We've got to conclude our uh, discussion for, for today. I'm going to have you on in some of the future podcasts. We're going to have some of the other experts on out there, uh, but I'm sorry to say we are done for our f- very first uh, premier podcast from the uh, Signal Integrity Journal Fundamentals podcast. Uh, thanks so much, Bert, for uh, taking the time to chat with us and uh, sharing your uh, your expertise, your insight, your knowledge. And uh, to our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us for today's uh, podcast.
podcast. This is the Signal Integrity Journal Fundamentals podcast. Uh, check uh, the Signal Integrity Journal for the listing for some of the future episodes online. You can go to podcast.signalintegritydjournal.com. A lot of typing there, podcast.signalintegritydjournal.com. Check it out on the Signal Integrity Journal website. And thanks, everybody, for joining us today. And, Bert, thanks so much for being our premier uh, guest uh, for today's podcast. Thank you, Eric. Nice seeing you again.